Last week, she was in West Virginia where she spoke for several days, three times a day. She was hugged by many children. She went home for a brief rest, got on a plane yesterday so she could be here with us to share in our services wisdom of remembrance. Please welcome Irene Zisblatt. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can you hear me all the way back there? I can't hear me now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for having me here today. I am really, truly honored to be here. But I am also honored to meet this wonderful man, this wonderful human being that cares. I wear a pin that says Zahor. Zahor is the Hebrew word for remember. We earned this pin, and he earned this pin because he remembered and he brings awareness to all of you and teaches you the good things of life. So I want to pass my remembrance on and thank you so much. Actually, it's got to go over here. Next to your heart. Because the Hebrew word is from left to right. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah, so it... it it, it says something from left to right. It doesn't say anything from right to left. <laughs> so could, thank you so much for allowing me to do this. Could you remember to pray for the New York Yankees when you get a chance? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> so thank you so much again for having me here. But first, I want to thank your children and the future generation for being here and choosing to serve as the witness to the witness. I also want to thank their teachers for teaching them this painful history. I am a child survivor of man's hatred. I am the only survivor of my family. That places on me a double duty to bear witness. I feel that there is a pressing need to educate our future generation about the Holocaust and the evil that took place at that time in history. We must learn that genocide is possible anytime, anywhere. But first, we must examine the effects of inhumanity. The Holocaust provides what such a world looks like. I survived the most awful places on Earth, Auschwitz, Birkenau, Majdanek, Neuagamen, and the Death March. There, a human life had no value. In Birkenau, when the cattle trains brought so many people to their death, all day as well as at night. I was woken up every night from the shooting, the barking dogs, and the stamping of thousands of feet and cries of desperation in different languages. At night, the atrocities combined with my sleeplessness gave me a vivid sense of existing in a factory of death where Hitler and his henchmen extinguished six million innocent lives. A million and a half were children. They were children just like our children. But they were robbed of their homes, 
and their childhood, yanked from their mother's arms, put behind barbed wire walls, and murdered. Birkenau had no clocks. The SS created another kind of time. It was marked by the arrivals of the cattle trains, the roan call, and the children that marched on the road to heaven, through which they became ashes. Their faces constantly appeared in front of me, and I said to myself, I must live for those that I love. I remember when Hitler gave the order that all Jews must be exterminated. We were thrown out of every country, and our suffering did not end. My mother was so sad when she didn't see us smile or play anymore. She tried to give us away, not because she didn't love us, but because she tried to save us. She raised us with so much love and care, and yet no one wanted to help her. The SS took her, my father, and all my siblings, but they wouldn't let me go with them. I saw them going into the chamber of death. The diamonds that my mother gave me is the only valuable connection to her that I have. I couldn't pray on that day, but for some reason, they let me live. It is now 65 years after the Holocaust, and still, things like a railroad track or a train brings my yesterday into today. I like to share some of my yesterdays with you, not to make you hate them, but to tell you what hatred does. I am a Hungarian Jew. The devastation of Hungarian Jews was the worst murder of men, women, and children in the last days of the war. When Hitler was facing defeat, he brought the Holocaust to Hungary. I was born there in a beautiful resort town in the mountains. We were only 263 families, and only a third was Jewish. As far back as I can remember, I had a good relationship with my non-Jewish friends. We didn't have any television or telephones, but we had each other. We children were always together in the parks, in school, and at home. The mountains we lived in had the most natural resources in all of Europe. Mineral water was one of them and still is today. My father was part owner of a spa, and he used this water to help people with muscular problems. He devoted his life to help everyone. My siblings, my friends, and I loved living in those beautiful mountains. But not far from us, in Germany, Hitler was ending democracy, and he was lining up his henchmen. The SAs, which were called the brown shirts, the SS, which were the security police, and the Gestapo, the special state police. Our government was an ally to Germany and chose not to deport their Jewish people yet, instead ordered harsh restrictions. From 1939 until 1944, Hungarian Jews were stripped of their rights and entitlements as they had never existed. In addition, the men were forced into labor units where they were poorly clothed, ill-fed, and ultimately murdered. At the age of nine, I was thrown out of the one thing that I loved most, my school, because I was a Jew. And from that day on, my life changed, and so did the world. 
My non-Jewish friends ignored me. My education and freedom was taken away from me. And my hopes were destroyed by Nazi hatred. We didn't see any SS in our country yet, but their evil was carried out by the Arrow Cross, which were the Hungarian SS. They were feared by all people, especially the Jewish people. Our food was running out, and they would not allow us to buy in any store. A curfew was enforced, and we had to wear the yellow star with Jew printed in the center. I will never forget when my parents were upset when we children were so hungry and they had no food to give us. Once a cow wandered into our backyard, and my mother risked her life during curfew and climbed out the window and milked her, and that was the only time we had milk. I was the oldest of six children. I had four brothers and one sister. Every day, the Nazis had new restrictions for us. After they stripped us of our dignity, they demanded our valuables. When they took our valuables, I heard my mother say to my father, first they took our sacred star and they made it into a badge of shame. And now they want to rob us of our feelings to be worthy enough of owning something of value. I think my mother sewed her diamonds into my skirt to save our pride. And then she gave them to me with a purpose, to buy bread if I get hungry. But today I, I think that her real purpose was to save my pride. In 1939, when Poland was invaded, a few men were able to escape the Nazis to us. My father with his friends helped them to safety. Their destination, Palestine. I don't know if they ever got there, but once a man had to spend the night in our home, and I heard him beg my father to take his family and go with him, because when the SS come to us, they will kill our children, just like they do in Poland. I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. In the morning, when I got up, the man was gone, and I asked my father, why are they killing the children? What have they done? And my father said the man wasn't himself. People don't do such a things. See, no one believed that the most civilized country in all of Europe was doing such a barbaric things just across our mountains. So we didn't believe the man, and we didn't go with him. We also didn't believe that we were going to be invaded by the SS because the war was almost over. And besides, we were in the mountains, and so few of us, we didn't think that they were going to bother coming to find us. We felt safe, surrounded by our mountains. But just then, our government was trying to extricate itself from her alliance with Germany. And Hitler got so enraged that he ordered his army to invade Hungary and deal with the Jewish problem. The next day, it was announced to pack a suitcase to each person not to exceed 25 kilos and go to a ghetto. I didn't even know what a ghetto was, but they made me feel that I had to be punished for something. The ghetto was a brickyard, but no bricks were being manufactured there. There were just people everywhere suffering. When we got there, there was no shelter left, so my parents built a hut from the tablecloths that my mother packed in her suitcase. We put our suitcases on the floor, and that was our bed. 
We were fenced in like animals and guarded like criminals. Once a day, they allowed us to go to the river that surrounded the ghetto, not to wash our face or our clothes. They just let us drink a little bit of water. They wouldn't even let us take water back to the sick people or the little children. We children were always afraid to be taken away from our parents or being beaten. Every day, they took men and boys to work. Many of them never came back. And then the cattle trains came, and they told us that we are being relocated to Tokai. Tokai was a vineyard in our own country. So everyone was so happy to leave this hellish place and go to the vineyard. My mother again packed our suitcases and told me that if, I, if we work in separate places and I get hungry, to use the diamonds to buy bread. When I saw the cattle trains, I asked my father, why are we going to work in cattle trains? And my father said, the vineyard isn't so far away. It wouldn't be so bad. But I went, when I saw that they were packing 100 people in each boxcar with a little pail instead of a bathroom, I sensed that something was very wrong. When they locked the doors from the outside, we were in complete darkness. A crack in the wall was the only light we had. My father was standing by the wall, by the crack, to see how far away from, we are from the vineyard. In the boxcar, it was no room to sit or move. Most people were just praying to stay alive. Some were holding on to each other. The children were crying. They were cold and hungry. And when the little pail filled up, the smell was unbearable. And then my father saw through the crack that we are not going to the vineyard. And he said, they lied to us. We just left our country and we crossed the border to Poland. I was holding my two-year-old little brother on my arms and he never stopped crying. He wasn't crying for bread or for water. He just wanted to go home. And I promised him that we will be home soon. But when my father said that we are going to Poland, I remembered what the man said about the SS killing the little children. And I held on to my little brother and promised myself that I will never let them take him away from me. My little brother never saw his home again. It, we were in the boxcar for about five days, and the whole time I was wishing that the train would stop so we can go to a bathroom like normal people. But most I was wishing that they would give the children some water and some food, and maybe they will stop crying. And the boxcar was so bad that when the train stopped, I thought that we have survived the worst, but I was wrong. When the doors opened, the SS with their wishes dogs yelling at us in German, get out, you dirty Jews. They immediately separated the men from the women they took the older children away and just left the little children in the mother's arms. And then they yelled at us to put our suitcases, leave them at the train, and the men will bring it to us later. We never saw our fathers, our brothers, or our suitcases. As we were passing the cattle train, I saw chimneys in the distance, and I pointed them to my mother, and I said, the factories we are going to work in but my mother paid no mind to me. In this chaos, she was trying to hold us together. She took my little brother from my arms and she told me to hold my four-year-old little sister's hand really tight so she doesn't get lost. 
A man in a striped jacket came over and he offered to help with the children and carry my little brother. But my mother wouldn't let him. But she asked him, where are we? And he said, Auschwitz. But we didn't know what Auschwitz was or why we were there. There were four long cattle trains packed with people waiting to get off. And I again looked at the chimneys and I couldn't believe that the Nazis had so many factories that they needed so many of us to go to work for them. Little did I know that we were the daily ration for the gas chambers. When Hitler declared the assault on Hungarian Jews, it was during the final solution. The final solution meant that not one Jew will survive to bear witness. And in 54 days, on 147 cattle trains, 437,402 Hungarian Jews were in Auschwitz. And that was only from the little towns around the cities. The cities were already gone by then. When we passed the cattle trains, a handsome assessment wearing white gloves and a baton-like stick in his hand. He appeared in front of us and pointed that stick at my mother and yelled at her, put the child down and go to the right. But my mother being so desperate to hold us together, she yelled back at him, my children will go with me. He got so angry at her that she didn't obey him. He picked up this baton-like stick and hit my hand with such a force. My little sister and I were bleeding and I had to let go of her little hand. I begged him and cried to let me go with my family, but he just kicked me away from him. And then I heard my mother call out to me, don't cry, I will come for you later. That was the last time I heard my mother's voice. A few minutes later, I was in a huge hall with thousands of people, but I was alone. The SS men and women with their vicious dogs again yelling at us, take your shoes and clothes off and hold them in your hand and take your valuables and put them in the bin. And I remembered my mother's diamonds, so I quickly took them out of my skirt. But I had no place to put them, so I put them in my mouth. After they shaved my long hair and replaced my name with number 61937, I saw that they were pulling gold teeth from people's mouth. I didn't have any gold teeth in my mouth. But my mother's diamonds were in my mouth, and I knew when they find them, they will take them away and shoot me for not putting them in the bin. So for fear, I swallowed the diamonds. After they gave me a piece of clothing that barely covered my body, and they pushed us out to the courtyard. At the door was a huge mirror, and they ordered us to look at ourselves. I didn't recognize myself. I was reduced to a number that represented a nothing. I was stripped of my identity and my dignity. But that was their first process of dehumanizing us. And then they lined us up in rows of five and marched us into a place called Birkenau, a place of evil. The SS locked the electric barbed wire gates behind us, never to let us out. It was spring but flowers and grass didn't grow there. The sky was as gray as the mud under my feet. The wooden barracks with three-story bunks was our luxury housing. One thousand of us in each barrack and 10 of us in each bunk that didn't give us any hope to ever get out of there. 
We were so close together that when I had to turn, all 10 of us had to turn. Our food for the day was a cup of brown liquid they called soup. It was seasoned with a chemical that was destroying our reproductive organs. The twice-a-day row call wasn't just to take hand, but Dr. Joseph Mengler's haven for human guinea pigs for his brutal experiments. We were completely cut off from the outside world. At the end of the day, when my mother didn't come for me, I decided to go to look for her because in this piece of rag on my body and my hair shaved, she will not recognize me. She won't be able to find me. But when I got to the door, the couple slapped my face and yelled at me, where are you going? And when I told her, she pointed to the chimneys and she said, your mother is just about now coming out of one of those chimneys. And if you don't go back to your bunk, all of you will die today. I was so confused. I didn't know why she was saying that about my mother. My mother was only 32 years old, and she was beautiful. Why would anyone do this to my mother? But I had no answers to my questions. So I climbed up to my bunk, and I was trying to go to sleep, hoping that when I wake up, this madness will be gone. But I couldn't fall asleep because the cries of little children from the outside were so sad. We didn't have any windows in our barrack. We had a three-inch opening between the ceiling and the wall. So I was trying to see if I can help. So I looked out the opening, and I saw trucks coming down the road. And two little children, this little, fell out of one of the trucks. And the assessment came out and picked them up by their two little feet and just threw them against the truck. The blood was everywhere. He threw them back on the truck just like two pieces of firewood, like they weren't even little children. Those little children that committed no sin will never smile again. My suffering grew from minute to minute. I was so helpless. I didn't know what to do, so I started to scream. But the girl next to me put her hand on my mouth, and she begged me not to scream or even talk because the punishment was death. So in my silence, I called for God, but God wasn't there. I was thinking, where is he? Why isn't he here to help those little children? And why isn't he, was he allowing them to do such a terrible things? I was actually having a big fight with God. But then I was saying to myself, why am I fighting with God? God didn't create the Holocaust. Men did. So in my childish mind, I figured it out that God must be in a place where he is helping other children. And when he is done, he will surely come to us and he will help us. Against all impossibilities, I was not losing faith. And the next day, I was selected by Dr. Joseph Mengeler for his brutal experiments. I was no longer a 13-year-old child. My childhood could not continue in the death camp. But in a desperate effort, I had to save my mother's diamonds that carried her love. Once a day, they allowed us to go to the latrine. And if you saw Schindler's List, you saw what the latrine looked like. I didn't have the pleasure of sitting on one of those holes because I had to find a safe place to save my mother's diamonds. The whole time I was incarcerated, I swallowed and retrieved the diamonds again and again. 
It would have been safer to throw them away when I realized that I cannot buy bread like my mother said that I have to. But the diamonds were carrying the pride and the love, and I couldn't throw them away. Their pride and love was stronger than the Nazi hatred. I saw hatred so strong that when Mengele experimented on me without any anesthetics, and the pain was so unbearable, I saw joy in his eyes watching me suffer. That kind of a hatred existed in the 20th century in Nazi Germany. When the SS packed the gas chambers with mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and grandparents, I was there. I heard them. I saw them. And I heard them cry out for the last time, Shema Israel, or do not forget us. At that moment, my will to live became stronger and more important. I promised to be their voice if I survived this nightmare. Those children's voices were silenced in the most unspeakable terror of the Holocaust, just because their eyes were not blue enough, or their skin was not white enough, or they were Jewish. Those million and a half children are depending on us to carry their message never again. When Nazi doctors were torturing me and the pain was so unbearable, I knew that I must endure and stay alive as long as I can for them. During the experiments, I had a silent friend. Her name was Sapka. We were silent because even in our pain, we were not allowed to cry. And one day, they took Sapka away, and when she didn't come back, I just assumed that she went to the gas chamber. It was so hard to overcome even just one hour in a place like that, especially when you were alone. And then they called the selection, and they selected 1,500 women, including myself, to go to the gas chamber. They ordered us to take off our clothes, our one piece of garb, again. And we stood in front of them naked, and they were staring at us for a long time. But it didn't matter that we had no clothes on. We felt no nakedness. It was our souls that were naked and exposed and invaded and humiliated. And then they marched us into the number three gas chamber. And when we started to go inside, we realized that the gas chamber is not big enough to hold 1,500 people. So we started to push back out. And I was pushed back to the doorway. And when I got to the doorway, I dug my nails into the side of the door. And I was just hanging on not to get pushed back inside. Not that I was hoping for a miracle, but I just wanted to look at the sky and the outside as long as I could not to be inside. And then when the gas came, the SS ordered the guard to close the door so they can throw the gas inside the chamber. And he got so nervous that he couldn't obey them because he couldn't close the door. I was in the way. So he threw me out and he closed the door because he, he had to obey at any cost. And he disappeared, and I ran up the ramp, and I, I didn't see any hiding place anywhere. But then I saw that the gas chamber, the roof of the gas chamber was above ground. The gas chamber was underground. And there was a space between the roof and the ground, little space. But I only weighed about 50 pounds, so I crawled underneath the eave, and I just 
I, I, was, I was just hiding there. But even though I knew that I will be found and I will be put back into the gas chamber with the next group that's gonna come in, for that moment I had hope. And then a miracle did happen. A Zander commando came to do his job and he saw me, he pulled me out from underneath the roof. He took off his jacket and he covered my naked body and he said, I'll be right back and I'll throw you on a train that's going to a labor camp. I thought I was hallucinating. I never heard of anything like this happening. But he did come back and he, he said, I'm gonna throw you on this train. So if you make it, live a little for me too. And that is when I realized how much I wanted to stay alive. Do you know what a Zander Commando is? No, okay. A Zander Commando is just that, a command of men, strong men and boys between the age of about 18 and 35. When the trains brought people from all, every country in Europe, Mengele and other doctors picked a group of boys and men, strong men and boys from each country to work in the gas chamber. Their job was to appease the people when they let them to the gas chamber, so there is no chaos. And when they were dead, their job was to take the bodies to the crematorium and put them in the oven. The only problem was they only gave them three to four months to live. And after that, they would kill all these boys and men and pick a new, new groups from every country because they didn't want to leave any living bearer. At all times, the Zander Commando consisted of over 8,000 men and boys. And every three to four months, they killed these strong, wonderful human beings and select new ones. So, because they didn't want to leave any living bearers. So this boy was about, I would say about 18. And he was from my country, so he, you know, he uh, spoke Hungarian. So I asked him, where are you from and what is your name? And he said, it's not important. I only have three more days to live. So if you make it, live a little for me too. And he threw me on a train. Can you imagine, out of seven gas chambers, the number three gas chamber was the only one that had a railroad coming all the way up to the gas chamber. So I was sent to that gas chamber. I could have been sent to number five or number six. But I was sent to this gas chamber. So what was it? Was it a miracle? Was it an omen that God yelled down to this boy, save this child? I can't figure out what happened that day, but I'm so happy that it happened or I wouldn't be here today. So I was on this train and we were only moving at night, so we didn't see which way we were going. But when the train stopped in a camp called Neuagamen in Germany. The train unloaded its cargo and it left empty. That showed us that no one leaves this camp. We were put in barracks and bunks just like in Auschwitz. And in the morning when I got up, I looked down to my lower bunk and another miracle happened. My silent friend Sapka was looking straight at me. It was such a reunion for both of us. We, we both thought that we were both dead, and here we were together again. We weren't allowed to talk to each other, even in this camp, but we didn't have to. We just knew that from here on, we will be together no matter where it takes us. 
So we worked in separate ammunition factories all day, but we saw each other every night. And then in January of 1945, they gave us a blanket and a pair of wooden shoes that didn't fit. And they put us out on a death march. The death march meant that we were marching away from freedom. The weather was cold, the snow was high, and we, in this one little piece of garb that barely covered our body, we were marching to the unknown. Every day, they were shooting people and left them on the wayside. The ones that were shot were still struggling to die, and Sapkow and I were so helpless. We couldn't believe this evil in this unreal world. But we marched, avoiding the gun and determined to survive. They never gave us any food or water, so we ate the snow that we walked on. And by April, we were only about 200 of us left alive from 5,000. And so we were just about to give up, and we decided that we were going to just sit down on the road. And when they tell us to go, we won't go, so they'll have to shoot us. But just then, planes appeared from behind the mountains, and they were bombing everything that was moving. We were on this narrow road between two forests, and the only thing that we saw moving were the trucks that were carrying the supplies for the SS and us. So they bombed those trucks. They were flying all over like schmitterines. They left the dogs to to guard us, and they went back to see whether there were any survivors from the bombing. I don't know if they were or not, but when they came back, they ordered us to march again, and I didn't want to march anymore. So I did sit down on the road, and I wanted them to shoot me. But Sapka pulled me up and put me into the lineup, and she whispered to me, look away from what you see and think about the world they took away from us. And I said, Sapka, I don't want to think about anything. I just want to die now. And I said, I don't want to go anywhere anymore. I don't know where we're going or what's going to happen when we get there. And she says, oh, no, I know where we're going. We're going to the library, and we're going to read a book. And then we're going to go home and have dinner with our families. And then we're going to sleep in our own bed, and we won't have to share it with 10 people. So you can't die today. Of course, that was a wish that we will never have. See, Sapka was 19. She had a little more sense than I. So she always thought of things to keep us going whenever she saw me give up. And I did the, I did the same thing to her when she was giving up. Sapka and I were each other's strength. We survived Auschwitz, Mengele's experiments, the loss of our families, the cold, the hunger, but I couldn't see how much longer we can live. And then she said, I know we're gonna have to die pretty soon, but before we do, we need to have some real food in our stomach. And I said, why? She said, we can't go to heaven with an empty stomach. But so that was a wish also that we will never have. So again, she pulled me into the column and we marched for a while and then she pulled me out of the column and we were standing on the side of the road and it was a very dark night. And she uh, said, when the column passed, she said, God created this dark night so we should escape. And at that point, I did not question her anymore. I just did whatever she said. So we went into the forest and we ran all night up the hill. At daybreak, 
we saw an abandoned farm in the distance. So we ran into the fields and we were digging in the ground to see if we can find something to eat. And we found a little potato. And then we heard water running, so we followed the sound and we came upon a little brook that had the most cleanest water we saw in a long time. We were so rich, we had a little potato and all this clean water. So we shared the potato and we practically drank dry this little brook. And we had a half a blanket left because the other half used to tear off pieces and wrap up our feet when we lost the shoes in the snow. But that was okay because we were so emaciated that the half a blanket was okay. So we decided to rest there. So we covered ourselves up with the blanket. We fell asleep. I don't know how long we slept, but someone was poking us with the back of a rifle and woke us up. And Sapka immediately said, I don't want to come out of the blanket. I don't want to see who's going to shoot us. But I stuck my head out and I saw two soldiers in strange uniforms and in strange boots. And they were speaking a very strange language. I spoke seven languages and I couldn't understand what they were saying. But they didn't understand me either. And one of the soldiers was like sort of bending down towards me and his dog tags fell out of his shirt. And on the dog tags, he had a little mezuzah, the Ten Commandments hanging, real tiny. And at that point, Sapka and I thought we were the only two Jews left alive in all of Europe. So I was yelling, Sapka, come on out, there is another Jew. But she wouldn't come out. So I gathered all my strength, and I pulled my, myself up on this poor man. I wanted to hold it just make sure I'm not hallucinating. So I held it and I kissed it and at that point he kind of figured out that I was human. So he pulled me off his body, put me on the ground and grabbed his body and they just took off. In a few minutes, a whole bunch of them came, were coming down the hill towards me. And I again said, Sapka, come out of the blanket. There are so many of them and they all wear the same uniform and the same boots, they're not Germans. And she said, who are they? I said, I don't know who they are, but coming out, maybe you can speak a language that they will understand. But she wouldn't come out of the blanket. So when they got to me, they had a German speaking soldier. And when he saw me, he went, who are you hiding from? And why do you look like this? And I tried to explain to him that I was in a death camp and he didn't know what I was talking about. And then he got so angry and he yelled, what kind, of, what kind of people do this to children? And I again tried to explain to him what kind of people do this to children, but he didn't know what I was talking about. And I looked at him and I said, who are you? And he said, I am an American. But I didn't believe him because we were so isolated from the outside world. We didn't know America was fighting in this war. So I got really scared. And he probably saw fear in my eyes. So he started to convince me that he said, we are American and we are here to stop the war. And Hitler is losing the war and Germany is burning. And he convinced me because he wouldn't have known all that had he not been who he said he was. So I felt very comfortable with him. And the first time in a long time, I looked up to heaven. I said, thank you, God, for watching over us. This one soldier was saying to me, 
what would you like to eat? And that's when Sapka came out from under the blanket. <laughs> and she very quickly said, please, can we just have a little bit of scrambled eggs and a small loaf of bread so our wish becomes a reality? Well, you never saw such a sight. About 200 men or more, gorgeous, tall, strong men, they were gathering little debris and making fires and scrambling eggs in their helmets because the war was on and you couldn't build a big fire because the war was coming towards us. And they, were, they didn't have any bread, so they had these brown boxes and they kept opening up these boxes and so much crackers came out of there. And also these brown, big chunks of brown something. Turns out to be chocolate, but I never saw chocolate before, so I didn't know what it was. And I didn't care because I was very happy with the crackers. So Sapka had her eggs and I had the crackers instead of bread, which was, it was great. It was wonderful. And then they gave us a clean shirts, so we went back to the little brook and we washed ourselves and put on clean shirts. And after that, they put us in a Red Cross van. And again, they made our dream to become a reality. There were two beds with pillows and blankets and we sat on the floor for a while because we weren't sure that was for us. And we started to talk in our normal voice. And you, you cannot imagine the feeling for being able to use our voice and no one was there to shoot us for talking. So we sat on the floor for a while and when no one came in, so we sat up on a bed. And again, we couldn't believe such a luxury that we are going to sleep in these beds and we won't have to share it with 10 people. So we felt like we need to celebrate our freedom, but we couldn't celebrate our freedom. We couldn't even enjoy our freedom because we thought about our families and that we will never see them, so we couldn't even do that. So we just cried ourselves to sleep. And in the morning when I got up, Sapka was still sleeping. So I tried to wake her up, but she wouldn't wake up. So I yelled at her, Sapka, you have to get out of bed now. We have to start our new life together in the free world. So get up. But she didn't get up. But the medic came in to get us ready to leave because they had to go on and fight this terrible war. So I asked him, would he please help her wake up because she is so weak, she cannot wake up by herself. And I saw he gave her an injection, but she didn't wake up. So I yelled at him, please wake her up now. She has to get up. And he said, I can't wake her up. She sleeps in a beautiful place, and she is no longer sick or hungry, and she knows that she is free. And I said, what are you talking about? She was never sick. And he said, she was very sick. She died in her sleep of typhus. And he says, please, you need to tell us where we can bury her body, because they had to go. And, but my heart was so full of grief. I was questioning myself, could I have done something to help her stay alive? She was so looking forward to seeing the new world. And again, I was losing my loved ones. She was the friend and family I thought I was gonna have forever. And at the age of 14, I was alone again. But I had to find a spot to bury her body, so I went back to the spot where these wonderful soldiers of General Patton's army found us and gave us a chance to become human again in a free world. 
and we buried her, and they promised me that after the war we will come back and we will take her body to a, a real cemetery. And they did come back, and, but we couldn't find her body because the mountain was so destroyed from fighting. But she is in my heart all the time. So they put me in an American hospital, and they went on to fight the war. I was in there for a while, and when I got stronger, they put me in a refugee camp in Austria, in Salzburg, Austria, where I joined 40 children to go to Sweden to an orphanage. But while we were waiting, one of my liberators went home, and he put my name on a survival list in New York. And my father had a brother living in New York, which I never knew about. And when he saw the name, he contacted the camp that I was in, and he asked them to find me and ask me if I want to come to this country to a new family. I screamed so loud, they must have heard me all the way to New York. And I waited two years to be processed into America. I couldn't believe that I was going to the greatest free country in the whole world. And finally, in 1947, I saw what a free world looked like for the first time in my life. After many encounters with death, I survived Hitler's atrocities, and now I must rebuild my life. But first, I must be the voice that I promised to be. But I couldn't, because who is going to believe a child such a nightmare? So that was one of the reasons I didn't talk about the Holocaust or my experience in it for 50 years after liberation. I couldn't tell of our torturers that almost destroyed our temples, our scriptures, and humanity itself. But then in 1994, when Schindler's List came out, I knew that it is my duty to bear witness. It was difficult to describe so much sorrow. Even in my free world, my nightmares were the same, except the ashes were grayer, the cries were louder, and the pain in the children's eyes were clearer. When I woke up, I had to force myself to think where I was. So how can I be the voice that I promised to be? I tried to think about my tomorrows because my yesterdays were all about Auschwitz. But then I thought, maybe the experience in the camps will be lessons for humanity. So I must learn from my yesterdays and share them with the present and future generation. Since I was only 13 years old when I endured so much pain and witnessed so much injustice against humanity, I knew that the children of tomorrow can learn from my pain. So I forced myself to go back to the death camps in 1994 with 5,000 teenagers from 49 countries. When we went back and we walked into the, to Birkenau on the planet of evil, where I lost my whole family and became a guinea pig for Dr. Joseph Mengeler. When I saw how much evidence the SS destroyed so the world shouldn't see what they had done, I got so angry I wanted to hit someone. But most what I wanted to do is yell at Mangalar. But I didn't want to scare the children, so I looked around, and what used to be the gypsy camp, there were still a couple of barracks that were not destroyed. So I went inside one of them, and on top of my lungs, I yelled at him, look at me. 
I am alive. And spite the experiments you did on Sapka and I, and the millions of people you sent to the flames, I am back with 5,000 healthy children, and you can't touch us. Since there is no room in my life for hatred, that was my revenge. And then I went to the number two gas chamber where my entire family was murdered by the gas. And again, what used to be the gas chamber is now a pile of rubble. But in 1994, they still allowed us to go around the gas chamber. Now it's all gated up because it's fallen apart. It's dangerous. So I found a hole on the side of the gas chamber, and I crawled inside. And there was still a room that was not destroyed. So I sat down on the ground, and we always carry a lot of candles with us. So I lit the candles, and I prayed for the victims that died such a cruel death. And when I was ready to leave the gas chamber, I saw a table set for a Seder. The Seder is our Passover dinner. And my whole family was sitting around the table. And next to my little sister was an empty chair. And that was my chair. So I got up from the ground, and I was going to sit on my chair. But my mother put her hand in front of me, and she says, you can't sit in your chair today. Promise me that you will stop crying and you will do what you must. When I reached out to hug her, she wasn't there. So I sat down on the ground and I wrote her a letter. And I'd like to share the letter with you. I will not cry anymore. And I will never forget the children who died the cruel death. Because their eyes were not blue enough. Or their skin not light enough. Or they were Jewish. I will never forget the painful look in their eyes when they march to their death. Dear mother, this, this letter I am writing to you is very special. I want to tell you how much I miss you. I missed you on my wedding day, and you did not share my happiness. But most I missed you when I gave birth to your grandchildren, and you could not hold them. It is difficult to live with the fact that you were cheated of, of enjoying them. As for me, being a mother today, I can feel the pain you felt when your children died in your arms from the gas. For me, there is no medicine I can take to heal my pain. I am still learning to live with it. But I promise you to tell the world all that happened, and I hope that God will help me stay strong. And I pray that he watches over our children of tomorrow so they can remember the past and never be silent when they see injustice against people. What happened to us should never happen again. And on this day, I am making a commitment to help heal the sickness of hatred. And when I can't help anymore, I hope to sit in my chair and tell them that they are being remembered and learned from. When I came up from the gas chamber, I shared my past with the future generation for the first time in 50 years. I was grateful for the courage. I was also liberated again and freed from Auschwitz and Birkenau's training ground, where the SS trained me to step over the dead and not to cry for them. Today, I want to say to them, I survived your atrocities, and I cry for the dead. And I smile, and I walk among people that value human beings and I have not stopped since. 
Since then, I have spoken to many people in many countries, including our government. I still can't believe that I am alive and I have shared my past with the most powerful government in the whole world. But sharing my past with the future generation is most important because they are going to be that government in the future. And it's going to be up to them to make sure that everyone is free to practice their beliefs. So if they will remember the Holocaust, they will not let it happen again. The Holocaust is not just a part in history, but it lingers in the present. Think about Rwanda, Bosnia, Africa, and our own country on 9-11. Perhaps when we were beginning to forget how powerful hatred can be, 9-11 reminded us and we tasted violence and mass death. So we must absolutely be aware of hatred and change people's mind about hating others. Otherwise, it will be another unexplainable event like the Holocaust. We must learn the lessons of the Holocaust and never forget what hatred leads to. If we stand up against prejudice, racism, and promote tolerance, it will change lives and behaviors. We must work together to protect the future of human existence for generations to come. And it has to start with our children of tomorrow. They are the first generation at a distance of the Holocaust and the last generation to know survivors firsthand. None of their children will be able to meet a survivor. So they have a very important mission to teach their children what they learn from survivors. I need them to help me to bring a good understanding about this painful event. When I am no longer here, I hope that they will carry my message to the future so those fires of hell become a light of hope. There are those who say that the Holocaust never happened, but they will not succeed because we will always remember. We are the last witness to the tireless energy of Holocaust deniers. So please, accept my legacy and join my children and grandchildren who will tell and retell of our losses and grief and hope to stop genocide. I will not be silent and I will not forget the victims. As long as I am able, I will speak worldwide to improve human conditions. My goal is to make a difference in one person every time I share my past. I cannot explain that dark time in my childhood, but we must remember it. It is important to recall the past so our lives and those of generations to come will have more meaning. The memory and the lessons of the Holocaust are not negotiable and not a subject to be forgotten. I relive my pain again and again so present and future generations can learn from it. My hopes are to instill a trust in youth which compels them to speak out against crime, against people, whenever they see it. I came forward to share my degrading experience in hopes that my personal story influenced everyone to work for understanding and tolerance. I don't want the world to forget what happened to us because I don't want it to happen again. For too long, hatred, fear, and intolerance 
have torn apart families, communities, and nations around the world. If our world is to achieve lasting peace, all people must learn that even we come from different backgrounds, races, and cultures, we share the same dreams for our children. The world has not learned yet from past histories, not just the Holocaust, but histories before the Holocaust. And I cannot explain Auschwitz and its genocide of Jews and others, but this painful event teaches us what is important in life. So if our children of tomorrow will remember the Holocaust, that will be a lasting memorial to the victims. So no matter how small they think they are, they can make the biggest difference. In spite of the chemicals in my soup and the experiments that Mengele tortured Sapka and I, I have a six-foot-tall gorgeous son and a beautiful daughter and five grandchildren that light up my life every single day. My mother's diamonds and I... My mother's diamonds and I also survived their atrocities, and they are to be given to each firstborn girl and every generation to preserve my mother's memory. They are never to be sold or traded unless, God forbid, they are hungry, they are to buy bread. So that is my revenge to Hitler, Mengele, and all the Nazi regime. And I want to thank you and love you for being here and having me here with you on this special day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I love you.